Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I am here with our fantastic producer, Nathan Yoder, and the illustrious stalwart co-host, Aaron Mercer. Aaron. Wow. All right. You added a word there. I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that one. I feel like stalwart is such a great word for you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one. I don't... I should probably look it up in the dictionary, but, you know, consistent, faithful. You know. It, it sounds good. For now, I'll take it. Anyways. Thanks, Pierre. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're going there. So today we have a great conversation. We are with Adele Bovard. Adele uh, has a career in education. She's also just became certified in restorative justice. We'll share more about that. But the question, Erin, today, and she's from Browncroft, she's a small group coach. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, some of our listeners will be interested in that. But the question we're asking is, why is reconciliation so complicated? What are some of your thoughts before we throw it to her? No, I think this is a, it's going to be a great conversation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Adele, I've been able to talk to Adele in the past about some small group and rooted related things. And um, I'm really excited to learn about this side of what, what Adele has been doing also. And I know it's close to her heart. So um, yeah, no, obviously this is a, important topic for our, 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 not just our church, but our nation. So, um, yeah, I mean, on, on that, Adele, I guess we've, we've talked before, um, but I think it'd be great for our listeners to know a little bit more about you and, um, your background and how, how this even became, uh, well, first of all, what is restorative justice and why did you get interested in it? So maybe some more backstory to start with. Sure. So I've been a Christian a long time. Um, and I love that I've had experiences with many different denominations, and it's really allowed me to see my faith as real and practical and transcendent. So, you know, I try to live that faith every day, which is a big part of why I got into restorative justice. So um, I'm an educator, lifelong, sold out, knew I wanted to be a teacher since seventh grade, <laughs> you know, never deviated, and have loved every part of the profession. So I went into teaching, I taught at elementary and secondary schools, and then got called to what we call the dark side of administration, and went into the building level. So I was a building principal of some elementary buildings and a secondary building. And then got called into central office, and I've done roles of deputy superintendent, superintendent of schools in all demographics. So I've worked in rural schools. Uh, my first principalship was in a rural county where there were more cows than people in the <laughs> school. Uh, I've worked in suburban schools. Um, actually, I served in Webster for a time as superintendent of schools. Um, I've worked in Rochester City, which was really a learning experience for me and a really important part of this journey of restorative justice. And then I went to Long Island and worked. Uh, I retired from a district on Long Island. But that's where I feel like I put you know, kind of all the pieces together and was able to do some really strong work in restorative practice. So what is restorative justice, right? It's a relational framework that puts a premium on dialogue. So it has levels of practice, and the first level is community building. So when we do community building, we sit in circle and we use the wisdom from indigenous people from this country, from New Zealand, from Africa, about attending to the work of community in circle, right? Um, so we sit face to face, we speak one at a time respectfully, and it really diminishes the disconnection of our technology forward world. You know, mm. when we talk to parents right now, they're always telling me, my kids don't know how to speak anymore. They're texting everything, you know, and they lament over this, right? Well, circle practice restores that connection that's so important to a healthy community. 
So there's many levels of this dialogue. You know, we'd say that restorative practice begins with our language and how we interact with each other. So um, we use a talking piece. We pass the piece, right? And when you hold the piece, you speak your truth. Mm. When you pass the piece, you really have to focus on listening. And this is where the real sacredness or shift happens because in our society, Whenever we do this practice, when I when we debrief it with people, they're like, we didn't realize how hard it was to listen. Mm. Right? Because you listen to understand, not to respond. And the beautiful thing about each voice, you get the piece, you either choose to speak or pass the piece, is that you're not worried about what anyone else is going to say because it isn't about them responding to you. It's about us speaking our truth and listening deeply to each other. So there's a magic that happens in this space that's very different. And it really can start to build that muscle of what we call empathy, which is just the ability to understand something from someone else's point of view. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, and Peter, before you jump off, and I, I'm, I'm just to get back to your background, what what is it that drew you from the education field mm -hmm. into really focusing on on um, you know restorative justice and all the tools that you were just talking about. Ah, yeah, so in all my roles as a teacher, a building principal, central office, there was always kids on the margin. And I would watch these kids on the margin. As a teacher, I wasn't quite sure how to handle them. You know, I tried, but I didn't really have the tools or vocabulary to connect with them and really understand what was going on with them. As a building principal, you know, these were the kids that teachers were sending to me on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. And here's where I started to categorize them because now I'm at a different level and I can kind of see trends, right? So these kids on the margin are the students of color, the students with disabilities, the students who are carrying some big trauma heaviness with them from the outside world, students with economic hardship, right? These are the students that are being sent to the office on a regular basis. These are the students that are just deregulating emotionally in school and we don't know what to do about it. Mm. So we use punishment, right? And then I'm in central office. Some of these punishments are, are like three months exclusionary suspension, six months exclusionary suspension. Watching a kid try to recover from that was tragic for me. It was really profound. So I began to search for an alternative, right? Because it was breaking my heart, you know? And mm. it's been said that like your purpose is the intersection of what breaks your heart and the world's great need, right? Mm. So this was breaking my heart, right? And I, I wanted to find a different way. So that's when I ran into this relational framework of restorative justice. Wow, interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I wanna come back to more, but there there is something that you said that some of our listeners will appreciate. And I, I think it's important, one of the things I've learned from you is that it's important for us to have definitions. So yeah. mm -hmm. you use the phrase, your truth. Mm. So, I think a lot of our younger listeners actually appreciate that. Um, some of our older listeners um, might be concerned because what you call truth isn't necessarily what I call truth. So I, I guess, you know, before we go too much deeper, you know, how are you kind of defining that and how are you kind of using that? Because I, I feel like that's really important to this process. Sure. Yeah. So when we encourage people to speak their truth, it's what they're thinking and feeling in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I say, you know, don't overthink this. Just trust that you'll know what to say. Because in speaking it, you'll find your voice, right? Now, you know, I think 
different generations, I agree, have different concepts of, and you know, they have different comfort levels with this. But it is about finding your voice and knowing it's the clarity of your voice, what you're thinking and feeling in the moment. Mm. Mm, that's good. Uh, so, so here, here's where I want to go. Um, there's this weird tension with reconciliation and justice, and it's probably why it's called restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a pastor, I kind of struggle with, you know, there's certain conversations where, you know, and usually it's about race, where, you know, some people say, hey, we want to pursue reconciliation. And then there's another group of people say, no, we have to deal with justice. How do you manage that tension? Because I don't think people on either side want to get rid of either of those. It's almost one group will say, we're going to prioritize justice over before we get to reconciliation. Another group said, hey, let's start with reconciliation to work our way to justice. So how do you manage that tension? Yeah, that, that's a very big question to, to try to grapple with. Um, so restorative justice has a second level of practice, which is responding to harm, mm. right? The harm to relationships, harm to people, harm to the trust we have in each other, right? And so where there's harm, there's needs, right? And restorative justice says, we need to see those needs and sort through what are our obligations, mm-hmm. right? To help people be restored, right? And then th- that leads us to engagement, right? And in restorative justice, we feel that anyone with a stake in the matter, as much as possible, should be included in this conversation. So, you know, it's interesting to think about this reconciliation and justice and the tension that's there. And I think the tension begins because we have very different experiences, depending on what cultural community you identify with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can think about communities of color and their journey, and those of us that identify with the white community and our journey. And when we listen to people that are, you know, identify with the black community, the Asian community, Latinx, you know, the communities of color, we hear stories of struggle that are very different their journey has been very different than ours, right? And the first step towards managing this tension is acknowledging that and grappling with that. Um, And it's interesting because when we think about the four types of harm, and this is something that was really, uh, really elevated in the graduate work that I did, there's uh, material physical harm, there's structural historical harm, there's communal relational harm, and there's emotional spiritual harm that happens when conflict occurs. Right. So say we just take the black community. Let's kind of trace their journey through this. So material, physical harm. Well, today the facts are, right, you have a white household, you have a black household. The black household is making about 60% of the income that the white household has, but only 10% of the wealth. Mm. Well, why is that? Well, there's structural historical harm that's taken place over time, right? Now that's a really long conversation, but just I'll just try to give you, you know, just to illustrate the point. You know, we had we freed our slaves, and then we immediately made the vagrancy laws that arrested the free slaves for not having a job, right? And then we convict leased them to plantation owners, right? Because we needed that work to happen, right? So there's this, been whole, this whole journey, right? So we're trying to correct that, and then Jim Crow laws come out, then we have a breakthrough in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, that starts to desegregate things, and then the Southern states do the Southern Manifesto that segregate 
immensely and protect that, right? And there's private schools. I'm an educator, so I notice these things, private schools that crop up that are totally segregated. And you're like, wow, you know, can we ever get through this? And then you have the GI Bill that gives, you know, now you can accumulate wealth, you can buy your household. That's such an important factor, right? But most of the money goes to the white population. Very little goes to our black soldiers. You know, and then we have redlining, which segregates our communities. Like there's been a whole host of these things. You know, and then we have the war on drugs, which disproportionately impacts our black communities. So, so when you get to communal relational harm, you know, you can think about the fact that America has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the prison population. And most of those people are impacted are our black communities. So they have a communal relational harm, right? And emotionally, spiritually, if we track this community, they're living every day with the fact that one in four, their young men have a one in four chance of being incarcerated. Whereas if, if you're a white young man growing up in America, it's one in 28. So that, that's an emotional and spiritual impact on that community. So as we unpack these types of harms, we're like, well, how do we manage tension for all? How do we understand this struggle? And when you're in the white community, I kind of think that you, there's a continuum of us, right? So we know in our country, there's one side of us that, you know, there's organizations that continue to maintain the segregation and this racism, and they're proud of it, right? Then there's a lot of us in the middle where we say, okay, so we know that this, is a, this has not been a great history, but we didn't do it, right? And we don't believe in racism, we don't engage in racism, but we wanna stay neutral because we feel like it's not our thing to get involved in, right? And we're unhappy when we see it, but we really don't know what to do about it. So we stay, we stay safe, stay, stay neutral. And then on the other side of the continuum are those of us who, you know, who say, I don't believe in racism, I don't engage in racism, and I'm gonna use what I have, the privilege and whatever influence I have, to really make a difference and wade into this and elevate the common humanity, understand the struggle of colors, you know, communities of color and elevate the common humanity and do what I can in my sphere of influence to start to make this reconciliation journey and to listen to those voices to understand the right balance. There's a balance that has to be had of reconciliation and justice. But before we can get to any of that, we have to reckon with what brought us here. Mm. So I'm. Uh, let me dig into that a little bit more, um, because we kind of went from educational space, um, students needing to be listened to, and, and how that can be healing. I think restorative, mm-hmm. um, and then we moved into one of the the great uh, issues and problems for our country of of our day. Um, so maybe can you walk us a little bit more, maybe through some of the practical. You talked about um, people listening and sharing their story or sharing what's on their mind, and but what is when you're when you're practicing um, the methods or the um, principles of restorative justice? What are your practical goals there? Are you are you trying to get a people within a community to sit down? How do you how do you do this? Is it, are you how are you selecting people? Number one, mm-hmm. how are you choosing what issue to focus on? And then what are you hoping to get out of that at the end of the day? Yeah, so let me start with schools. Sure. And then I'll move to the broader society. So sure. in schools, you know, that's, we start with our community building practices, as I said, and it's just amazing to watch the change 
and the shift in culture when these practices are put in place. So um, just watching students find their voice, watching teachers and students sit together, watching students say, I have some questions I want to use in circle. Right? It's, it's really, really powerful stuff. So um, we use those relationships so that when wrongdoing occurs in a school, we can use the restorative practices as an alternative to just punishment, right? Mm -hmm. And we can use this incident of wrongdoing so the student can unpack what happened, who was impacted, and in what way, and then what needs to be done to make things right. And by the way, how can we set this up so this doesn't happen again? Because the goal of restorative practice, this goal of this learning, is not just to have a fun conversation, right? But it's really to learn and to change and to, and to really have the student understand that they have agency, right? I can think, I can grasp this concept before I engage in behavior that's going to get me back here. And one of the things we see in schools that's like every single time, it's amazing to watch, when they start to do these practices, what we call the recidivism rate in schools drops. Mm -hmm. So I was dealing with a high school principal and he was certain he had a 2,100 kids in his high school, right? And he's like, if I don't suspend everyone that does anything for five days, he said, this place is gonna be anarchy and chaos. I have to use this punishment. So I've coached myself over the years, don't mess with people's attitudes, just change their experience. So I didn't argue with them. I'm like, I get it, you want the school to be safe, I totally understand. Can I try something with your deans? So he agreed, <laughs> we tried uh, this process of you know, the restorative approach with the deans, and they gave the students a choice in this high school. When they came in, they referred to the office, do you want, an, you know, do you want a restorative approach or do you want the traditional approach? So as students learned about it, more and more students started choosing the restorative approach right? Because it was kind of like it got around, right? That this really was a thoughtful process and you really could figure things out. So at the end of the year, that principal comes back to me and he says, do you see these discipline stats? He said, my recidivism rate cut in half. Hmm. I'm like, oh, you think? <laughs> you know? And, you know, kind of he became a believer and that's the power of the work is that you can really learn and grow, right? So, so I kind of feel like, you know, in, in, as an urgency to continue these practices with our children because if we can use these practices, learn that emotional vocabulary, have the courage to talk about our mistakes, our pain, our failure, right? And, and realize that it's not fatal, that we can take some agency and we can make things right. It's gonna be a whole different society when the kids grow up because one of the things that educators say to themselves is the, the tragic thing is that if adults haven't learned this as kids, they become adults believing that nothing is their fault, nothing is their kids' fault, and they're the most difficult adults to deal with in the school and I would say in society, hmm. right? So, you know, I've used these practices with groups of adults to deal with incidents of racial bias and harm, you know, incidents of longstanding conflict and have watched when you have the right preparation, right, when you really understand this process and you set up the time and conditions to have this conversation, even people that are really divided at first, if they voluntarily agree to it, will come into circle and find a path toward each other. And that's the profound part of this work. So what I what I think I hear you saying is, you know, we'll just go politically. I, you know, the healthy people that I engage these topics that might vehemently disagree, but they want 
change. Like they'll all use this. We need to get in the room together. You know, we need to spend time with each other. It's not always these deep conversations. Sometimes it's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's neighbors that voted differently that don't spend time. Like because of the echo chambers and I think most people want that. But what you're kind of saying that you're doing is on a very, very practical level, it's almost reteaching our culture conversation. And, you know, racism seems like it's a big deal, but there's there's other issues. Um, if I live in New York City versus living in Avon, or, you know, if I grew up in Binghamton, New York, which is where I'm from, and someone lives in Los Angeles, California, and and I think what restorative justice, racism is a piece of that, but it's also we as a culture haven't done a good job of engaging people that aren't kind of in our circles, right? That's right. And and what you see is in the telling of story, right? In the in the telling and the listening. So you tell your story. Everyone else listens and acknowledges that story, right? Without comment. There is a certain healing that starts to take place. There's a certain empathy that starts to take place that then can take on its own momentum and really chart the path forward towards what we call healing, reconciliation. Um, so it's interesting because you know part of the training that I took was intense facilitation experiences. So we did quite a bit of facilitating some very serious harm incidents. And I remember a professor saying to us, and it stuck with me, he said, you know, it's a complete fallacy to think you can heal the harm in one conversation. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking about the most intense processes that I facilitated. And yeah, there was a group that had like a decade worth of conflict that had divided them. And they were in an organization and they didn't even want to show up anymore to work because they just could not get along. Right? Mm. So, you know, we did some pre-work and pre interviews. Um, We gave them some information about dispositions to cultivate, to have this conversation, right? And then we had the restorative conversation. Now, I call them kind of high stakes because you walk in there not knowing what's going to happen, right? You you know you're going to trust the process, but you don't know. We are human beings, and we're not comfortable talking about these kind of high-conflict situations. So um, in the end, that group found a path to each other. And Mm. what they realized is we got to let the past go, right? Mm. We got to put it down. We can't think that we're going to get back to the way things were because too much has gone on. But we can draw a line in the sand right now, and we can decide what kind of future we want to create. That's what we have control over. So they, they made some agreements with each other on how they were going to treat each other from that day forward and then um, have sustained those agreements, and it's worked very well. So in our society, we need more time and space like this. Mm-hmm. So I created something. You want to hear about it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so as part of this frustration from being called into high conflict situations and saying, can you help? I'm like, yeah. And we, we know that restorative practice can be a response, but it can also be prevention. So I was thinking to myself about this, this whole issue of racial bias, harm, identity, you know, I, diversity, equity, inclusion committees that are running. I've served on those committees. I've consulted with those committees. And so often, like, they just don't know what to do. <laughs> they just don't know where to start, right, to talk about these really important topics. So 
I, in, we had read an article that had used the concept of a sustained restorative dialogue to respond to incidents of sexual assault and harm on a university campus. And this is in the RJ research. So I got to thinking, I love the concept of a sustained dialogue to talk about inclusivity, sense of belonging, right? Impact of cultural community. So I contacted, uh, through the network, I contacted the researcher and asked permission to retool the framework towards this end. And I did that for my practicum, right? Mm. And we did a trial one of it, and it was really quite amazing. What it is, is you do four conversations, right? And the first is pretty much just setting it up, creating norms with each other about what you need to be brave in this space, what it's going to take to feel safe, brave, trusted, right? And then, and then you follow the restorative questions. Basically, the second circle, the whole circle, you talk about what's happening to create a sense of belonging and what's getting in the way of that sense of belonging. Then the next circle, you talk about who's impacted and in what way. And there's, that's the heavy circle where you really encourage the storytelling and you acknowledge those stories, right? And then you talk about how you cope. And that brings it up a little bit, and people get a little more generative at the end because they can get the stories are, are really, you know, they're very personally held. So then the last circle is the call to action. So what can we do individually and collectively? Um, so I, I'm really excited about this protocol. We're repeating it right now. I'm in the midst of the second repetition with um, the researchers going to help me analyze and see if this is worthy to really be used in the field as a protocol for dealing with a um, sense of belonging and inclusion. Mm. It's, this is really interesting to listen to you. And I love, I, I love how you have uh, hit, hit this from both the educational discipline point of view I mean, the, the huge issue of, of race for a country. And then, I mean, it sounds to me like you're also dealing with more, <laughs> maybe a better, lack of a better term, localized conflicts. I mean, even the coworkers mm -hmm. that are having some really serious issues. And I think that makes this much more, um, potentially could be a lot more real for people when you, instead of thinking big issue, the, oh, yeah, I get it when I have a conflict with, when, when, Peter and I might need to talk a little. I don't know, but um, <laughs> Aaron, but, you and I never fight. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we have healthy conflict. Peter. Okay. It's good. There you go. Um, but uh, where was I going? Oh, so you had mentioned in, the, in, in your conversation where when you were talking, you said uh, some of these restorative practices and whatnot. And I'm getting the restorative part. I don't the word justice. I'm still working on that one. Like, what is where does justice seems like it's mm. a, a big word that people react to differently in our culture, depending on what their uh, history is, their point of view, their just what they've heard around them. Yeah. What does justice mean in, in the context of what you're doing? Yeah, so there's a concept called, um, when, when it, I just wanna take it to a place of um, the cultural community issue, and then I'll try to, to back into the sure. other questions. So um, there's a concept when you're talking about cultural community, to find justice means that the, the people that have the power need some humility, right? So in a situation, you know, what we want to create, we know that the journey and the struggle of all our cultural communities is different. And depending where we live and, you know, who we've identified with, there have been barriers that have been put in the way to us getting to the place where we are, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we want to create is a culture predicated on non-dominating relationships where each person can find their voice, connect to their world without barriers, 
and chart their path forward and thrive, right? So that's the big idea, mm-hmm. right? So what does justice look like? Well, it's it's really determined by the stakeholder involved. So there's a the saying in RJ that when harm has occurred, right, and you want to have justice for that harm, center it on the survivor. So in the criminal justice system, there is a big movement, an alternative to criminalizing someone is to participate in this restorative work, but center it on the survivor. You know, you go through the traditional criminal justice process and it's decided by courts, it's all about the person who did something wrong and what sentence they're going to get. And and the person that was impacted rarely has any time, any any time to tell their story, any understanding of their story, any time to really talk through what happened, right? So in as the alternative, restorative justice, when you talk to the person that received the harm, you ask them, right? You include them. You you ask what they would like to see happen and you have them participate in the process. So that's kind of the the idea of justice is really listening to the people that were impacted by the harm, allowing them to chart a path towards justice as they see that their needs are met. So, you know, at the beginning when I talked about the framework, when we have harm to relationship, harms to people, harm to trust, right, we have to figure a path forward. Hmm. And we've got to define that. So, you know, that's where the restorative conversation takes place to define what justice means. If you, if you're called into a situation where there's you know, I don't think and I won't go to the to race let's just make it a more like a a situation where there's been some very harmful things said to each other or maybe even done to each other um, and you're you're called in to try to help mediate in that process um, I think you started to hit on what, what you're hoping to, to get out of that although I'd love to hear hear more about that again but how do you even get people to sit down and talk like I, you know, when Peter, Peter brought up the word politics and, um, I think there's probably a lot of room for restoration amongst people politically, um, just red and blue or whatever, whatever else identification people have, but it seems like people don't even want to necessarily talk to people that are outside. Peter mentioned the word echo chamber. How do you get people to sit down and talk and, and to make that a, cause I assume that you probably have to have the parties at the table to make it actually a worthwhile conversation. Yeah, yeah, this is a voluntary process, right? And so, you know, I can talk about some of the situations where I've gone in and there's conflict. The first thing I do is talk to each person individually, and I take them through the same series of questions, and I hear them out, you know? And then I describe what could happen if they were willing to sit and talk, Mm. you know, and and participate in a restorative process. Then I give them time to think about it. (laughs) Right. And then, you know, we, we meet it. And depending on how intense the situation is, depends how, you know, how many, how much preparation. But when someone feels like they totally understand the process, they've told you their entire story all the way down to the roots. Like you got to peel off the layer. You got to get past the factual, what happened to the story, what they were thinking, what they were feeling at the time, what they're thinking now. I mean, you've got to take them all the way through it. If they're willing to sit in a restorative process, that's where the magic happens. If they're not willing, you have to use what we have traditionally in place. So let, let me let me have some fun with you here. Um, we might edit this out because we're. I, so I want to. I want to. <laughs> oh, you never know what's coming good. now. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. So so yeah. Jesus tells this parable, mm. and he says there is this 
um, worker for a king who owed him like $10,000. The king forgives it. And not within a few verses in the Bible, this worker goes to someone that owes him like 10 bucks, throws him into prison, you know, and the king looks at the servant and he says, I, I forgave this $10,000 worth of debt and you're throwing this person into prison. And he ends up going in prison and they take the other person out. So let's have some fun. How would you enter a situation like that story with restorative justice? You know, and just kind of thinking about, you know, the humility, the listening, you know, walk our listeners through, because I just think that's a fun parable to kind of see how this all works out. Now, do you want me to address the king or the... You you go where, you go wherever <laughs> you want to go. Okay, so the king is shocked because he's like, what happened? I modeled it for you and you didn't you didn't follow my lead, right? So a conversation with the worker might be what was going through your mind, right? Do you understand what happened? Do you acknowledge that there was harm done then that was give, that was you created harm for someone when you were forgiven, right? Mm. And you know, it, there could be a different resolution to that matter, right? That could have produced growth and learning in the person that the king was upset about, right? So I'm an educator at heart. I'm always for the growth and learning, right? <laughs> and I would love to to play that out and actually role play it and see if we could get to a different resolution. What What about the worker that got put in for the $10 debt? How would that restorative justice process be with, with that person? Because they're, they're the most powerless in this whole situation. Right, right. I think that um, in that situation, you would talk to that person as well, because this is, you know, every stakeholder has the conversation and say, you know, um, really understand what was underneath the actions of him not paying the debt. What was the cause of that? Was there a plan to get money and repay it? Was he just late? There's a, t- you know, there's many questions you would have to understand about why that happened. And then how could he make good on his debt, mm. right? Because it's not that you don't, you know, that you just have the conversation and you hold people accountable to the repair from both sides. And it's, it's interesting because as you get into conflicts and you really start to, to go through these processes, you find that more and more people can acknowledge, even if it's not a lot of impact, there's always a little bit of both sides of it right, that mm. have to come out. So... Um, so I'm really glad you went there, and I, that's really enjoyable. I actually, I think we should have you hang out with some of the biblical scholars to have some fun with that. But <laughs> so I think what, what would be great about this episode is kind of taking this to a practical level. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, my daughter Haley is in this like super helpful stage, but sometimes like her super helpful stage of like hugging my 18-month-old Lucy looks more like tackling, and it's kind of like, I understand what you're doing, you know, and I, I think you're motivated to do well, but, like, I don't want Lucy to get a bloody lip because you didn't realize you were hugging her too hard. Right. All the way up to, to what Aaron said, like, there's workplace problems. So on a very, very personal and practical level, um, how are you, how would you encourage our listeners to walk through this because I think I hear two parts. Like if I'm in the midst of the conflict, the first thing I need to do is listen. Um, 
the next thing I need to do is be able to kind of speak my perspective. And so what you don't want to get into, and I can hear my wife, who's a mental health counselor, say this, I hear you, but, you know, and so we want to have some practical ways to bring restorative justice or just to bring reconciliation and conflicts. How would you encourage someone on a very personal and the micro level? Right. Well, everything starts with language, right? So healthy language is critical to how we work through these processes. We have to understand that we're all still hardwired with a reptilian brain, mm. right? So when we sense fear, when there's conflict, hardwired into our psyche is one of three responses. We're going to fight. And we see that that's a visceral reaction. It disconnects people. You would literally shove them away, right? We're going, we could flight is the other, you know, you could get up and walk out of a conversation. This mm. is, you know, I don't want to talk about that. I can't talk about that right now. That's, that's flight. You just move away from, and again, you're disconnecting from the situation. Or you freeze. You just deer in the headlights, shut down. It's kind of go comatose, right? There's no response. So we have to intentionally rewire ourselves and understand that the first thing we want to do is express, you know, you, you want to get in conversation with the person, hear them out all the way through their story, and then express how it makes you feel, mm. right? And we don't usually have the vocabulary for that. And that's not a judgment. You stay out of judgment. You stay out of certainty. You invite the other person in. So if you express how it made you feel, right, then you can ask a question and invite the other person in because if you're going to come out with a judgment or you're going to come out with a scolding you're going to shut and disconnect so the whole the whole thing in restorative is to stay present stay in it stay conversing with each other and um you know i, I work for restorative justice education the founders dr tom cavanaugh now i'm a consultant for them and he has this saying that it doesn't have to be a perfect conversation mm. and you're not always going to get the words right but just stay in it stay real take a break if you need to and come back with more authenticity. So that's how I coach myself in these situations. Mm. So let me kind of drill down to you, because I think, um, let's say you and me have a conflict, and so there's a work project, and you failed to get that work project done on time. Mm -hmm. So I would kind of start with the conversation. I don't really want to annoy Adele, you know, but you know, say I'd, I'd come to you and say, you know, hey, Adele, I just want to follow up about this conversation. We said that this project needs to be done. Um, and you might say, I have a family member that's feeling really, really sick. Um, so I would probably respond back, oh, I, I feel for you because that's really difficult. But I feel very frustrated also because that needed to get done. Um, and then, I don't know, is that mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, walk us maybe there's a better scenario or a better story but i think what you're kind of trying to draw out is this language is really important right because i'm even thinking for some of the bigger issues that we mentioned like i'll just take politics right now somebody brings up this policy and <clears throat> you know somebody can say you know i feel like i'm not comfortable with that policy i also i could hear someone say with politics I feel attacked because I don't agree with you. Like, I feel like I don't belong in this country because mm -hmm. I don't agree with that policy. I mean, walk us a little bit more and kind of tease, and maybe I got the example wrong, but I'd just be curious how you, how you yeah. kind of walk through that. Well, there's kind of four parts to a conversation like that. 
So, you know, when you start to have that conversation, you enter it without judgment. And like you said, you just kind of state the facts or a great sentence stem as I noticed that, you mm. know, I noticed that, you know, this deadline has passed. Um, so tell me what's going on. Mm -hmm. right? And then you listen. Right? Mm. And then then the next part of the conversation is trying to determine the impact of that behavior. So you have to keep in your mind and coach yourself, the person's not the problem. The problem is the problem. So you're not blaming the person. Mm. But how did this lateness impact the project, the work, the organization, right? And so you clinically just, you, you with the other person, figure that out, the impact, right? And then, and then we try to get a little generative and like so... So what does it look like when this doesn't happen, when that, you know, when this problem doesn't exist so that you can say, so how do we make a plan to repair, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's basically the four parts. When it comes to policy and how people feel about policy and belonging, you know, I, I do quite a bit with policy. I'm now on the state board, just for an example, of the New York State Association for Music, right? So because I'm a former music teacher, so it's a lot of fun for me. Yeah. And we started to realize that some of the policies we had in place were doing a really great job serving our suburban kids and some of our rural kids, but really were not serving our city kids at all. So we had to take that on, you know. So having that conversation I, ha I we had some of it with the executive board in circle. I, I created some circles to have this conversation. And it's, it's really never comfortable. And I have to say that, right? If you think this is a comfortable process, think again. Mm. Because all growth is uncomfortable. Mm. And so you got to stay in it, right? But just lead with love, lead with grace, realize you're not going to be perfect at it but have the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, another one of the people that impacts my life is Brene Brown and her phrase that clarity is kind is so important, right? Be clear about what you're talking about so that you can find a path forward. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a really interesting um, conversation. It, you know, I'm, I'm so curious about what some of these circles would look like in the different the different contexts that you're you're um, talking about, whether it's big issues, employment situation, probably could be. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a different field for family, but uh, but even in in um, education, um, you know, the, whether it's student discipline or you mentioned even amongst uh, administrators trying to figure out how to best uh, get policy done that's helpful across the board. I think that's really uh, interesting to think about. And I would love, I mean, it might be interesting to be a fly on the wall in the midst of that. But I, you know, what, I mean, I guess as I'm listening to this, you know, I, I, I love the idea of people listening and um, really trying to understand where other people are coming from. And I know that that takes time. Um, that's a slow process. That's not a uh, it gets to our some of our previous episodes. It's not a social media process mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, you know, you can't you can't capture that in a in a tweet or a um, even a Facebook post. Um, but what do you do? I am curious. Like, what do you do when? I, I feel like in this process, you're assuming everybody is coming at the conversation, you know, rationally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess they're ready to talk. Yeah. Uh, what do you do? I mean, part of me, I'm thinking about, well, yes, you, you can come to a solution where people are, everyone has the right desire. At the end of the day, they want to do right by each other or for the community somehow. What do you do with situations? I mean, maybe, I don't know if there's an equivalent to this, even in the school discipline 
um, situation. But when someone just doesn't care or is, or is potentially, um, uh, you know, not, not ready to go the right way or to do something helpful for the broader group, what, what do you do with those situations? Yeah, well, I think it's important to understand that you first have to have a person deregulate the high emotion hmm. in order to be able to participate in this process. If a person is really emotional, um, there is a process to calm them down. Right? Hmm. There's a process to, to bring them back and to kind of cultivate, as you know, Abraham Lincoln said, the better nature of you know, the, your better angel, mm. right, so to speak. So th- there is a whole process for that, you know, calming down, mm. focusing. You know, we we have lots of different strategies that we use for that. Um, but then again, to it, we say this is a voluntary process. So if a child, you know, it, we'll, we'll bring it to school discipline. No, you know, they're not going to acknowledge, they're not going to take responsibility for anything. They're going to insist that it didn't happen. Even, you know, sometimes you have a video that shows them, but they're still insisting things didn't happen. You have to say, okay, look, I really want you to be involved in this conversation. I really want you to be able to chart the path forward. But if you're not going to work with me here, I'm going to make the decision for you because we have to keep this school safe. But I want you to know you had a choice. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And you just keep, and I've, I tell stories, I, I've had students that will reject my offer six, seven, eight times in a row. On the ninth time, they finally trust me and they'll say, okay, here's what happened. Hmm. So you got to stay in it. Well, well, so I think it'll be helpful for our listeners. Why is that? You know, because I, I think that some of our listeners would be like, well, I'll take restorative justice over getting suspended. You know, help our listeners kind of understand, because I, I think that there's a dynamic there that not all of our listeners understand. About why it takes so long for some students to trust. Yeah. Yeah, because they're carrying trauma with them. Mm. And when you unpack trauma, right, the trauma-informed approach to students is and restorative justice, they intersect, right? But you can't get to that if you're if the student's still in that hyperpunitive mindset. Mm-hmm. If they if all they feel like is going to happen is they're going to talk and you're going to punish, they're not going to be honest with you. Right? So, this is what we've learned from the research. So, it is allowing people to see that it works, to come to that understanding that you're going to guide them through a process. There's just not going to be a big stick that smacks them down, you know, after they tell you the truth. And and it takes some kids a long time to get there. And in our politics, you know, we have to be willing to sit with each other. We have to be willing to really take a crucial look at our policies, really see what the impact, like, like have that lens of impact. Who's being impacted by this policy? What is the impact, right? How do we really define that? And then how do we acknowledge, you know, the, if there's been a harm? And then what do we do to make it right? What do we do? And we talk to all stakeholders. And there's a process that could be followed. We don't see it in Washington right now, but there is a process that could be followed. You know why we don't see it? It's because Aaron Mercer's not there. Uh, <laughs> we are very glad he's here. But, you know. hey, I, so I, I wanted to um, ask, you know, we've had some on previous podcasts, we've had people who are involved in various ministries of various forms. So whether it's um, uh, homeless shelters or... Um, uh, you know, or food banks or whatever the case may be. And, and I know in, uh, with, with different, um, different missions that are out there, there's often faith-based programs that are helping 
in one way or another. You know, you had mentioned it was great to see recidivism rates go down for school discipline. You know, with prison systems, there's been faith-based programs that have been very uh, helpful for uh, prison recidivism. I can't even talk right now. But so is there a is there a uh, some sort of faith-based integration with the work that you're doing besides mm-hmm. the fact that you're you're a Christian doing it which of course is amazing by itself but is there are there more formalized approaches in that way too There's there's two in this area there's two major players in this space um, and I think they're really more about the there's Partners in Restorative Initiative which is about the restorative process there's Center for Dispute Settlement which really uses these practices in disputes um, so I, as a Christian, you know, am partnering with both of those organizations mm. and really I feel called to my local community, you know, because Micah 6.8, you know, this is what God requires, that mm. you love, you do justice, that you love mercy, that you walk humbly with your God. Yeah. And so that's my application of it. You know, I, I, don't, I would have to say I'm, I don't know if there's a formal Christian okay. organization that says we're all about restorative justice. I think many of the processes in the faith are restorative, mm. and it just lends itself so well, this com- you know, elevation of common humanity. You know, we see you know, in the New Testament, no, no Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free, no male nor female, which is like groundbreaking at that time, but we're one. We are one. There's a common humanity in Christ. Well, but what's important about what you just said, because I I preached a sermon, I've studied that passage a lot, is, and this is where it goes back to restorative justice, this is why Christianity is so connected. Um, Paul doesn't just say, you're all one. He's very comfortable in saying, oh, we have Gentiles, we have people of different economic backgrounds, and in some ways, kind of being able to identify that actually brings communities together, because what you're saying is, hey, this is your experience, you know, this is what I'm hearing from you. And, you know, so I guess I wanted to respond to that because I I think that some of our listeners might hear that passage and think where Christianity is getting that from. But I guess for someone that listens to this and they're like, Adele, like you're totally doing like the right thing and you're doing restorative justice and we believe in this, but Christians are the most judgmental people and you know, they don't, you know, they can't hold nuance. And like, this is one of the reasons why we have this podcast, uh, to have these conversations. How has Christianity informed your passion, your love, your desire for restorative justice? How has it impacted you? Yeah, I, well, we have this saying that restorative practice starts from within, mm-hmm. right? And my faith journey has been so profound. I, I've had to have it be part of my everyday every moment kind of life. So, you know, the scripture that says, in him we live and move and have our being, you know, I feel like every moment, the, the breath prayer of, God, what's mine to do now? God, mm. help me now. You know, give me the wisdom I need now. So that's really been the journey of listening to the call of do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, seeing the alignment to restorative justice, reaching to the margins of, of the schoolhouse, reaching to the margins of society. This is all what we saw Jesus do. And his example is what motivates me. Mm. That was so smooth, because that just leads us to our last question, which is what does Jesus have to say about this topic? So mm. the good news about this is Aaron and I are gonna respond, and then you get to clean up whatever mess we leave. Does okay. that sound good? That sounds good. <laughs> 
You want me to start, then you can clean up after me. I uh, I mean, it just depends who makes the mess first. So, but if you want to go, I'll Corey. start with. I'll make I'll make a mess <laughs> first. I'm sure. Um, no, I mean, I think that this this has been a really fascinating conversation, uh, and I think that Jesus wants us to be restored to Him and restored to each other. He, I mean, he he died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to Him and to, and and through Him to each other. And I think that's very powerful. And and uh, there's there's hard work that can go with that when you're trying to be restored with with each other, even amongst, I mean, <laughs> I should say even amongst Christians, sometimes especially amongst Christians, <laughs> it feels like, uh, within churches. But um, I think that this is, you know, there might be a lot of people who aren't familiar with the term restorative justice and something to wrestle through and what does that mean. And um, But at the end of the day, I think what, what we're hearing here is um, some powerful ideas of people just taking time to to listen and to speak without trying to necessarily um, speak over somebody else, but to hear and listen and then come come to a place of reconciliation. And I think that would uh, warm warm our Lord's heart. So anyhow, Peter, go ahead. You mm. clean it up. No, that was good. I mean, you just said the gospel. I can't clean that up. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, the thing that surprised me most of this conversation is actually running through stories of Jesus in the gospel and seeing some of these principles at play. I didn't, I didn't expect that. So the one that's coming to me right now is, you know, there's a story where Jesus, um, the religious leaders bring a woman that's caught in adultery. Fun fact, never brought the man that was involved, but brought the woman. And, you know, even as I'm thinking, why is reconciliation so complicated? what about restorative justice is the way Jesus responds to her. Um, you know, the men say she's caught in adultery and he begins scribbling on the sand. And some traditions actually think he was writing the names of the religious leaders that brought maybe even their sins or something. Um, and then he looks up and he says, who of you who have not sinned throw the first stone and they begin leaving oldest to youngest. And, he looks at the woman and he says, you know, where are your accusers? You know, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. And, you know, even hearing that conversation, um, Jesus, you know, in, in a very subtle way, you know, he kind of identified, this is the impact you're making on this judgment of making this woman, you know, being your argument against me or this, te- like, this is a real human being. This is very different than a theological conversation, but you know, for Jesus to to feel with her and to give her what we need, and it goes back to the most basic of all commandments: it's love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And at, at the essence of reconciliation, that's if I experienced what that person experienced, if I felt what they felt, you know, what would I want in return? And so Jesus, with this woman, says, "Your sins are forgiven." And you think about what reconciliation looks like. He he didn't dismiss. There was a justice side. He didn't dismiss, didn't say what she did was, you know, right. But he did offer, you know, some restorative justice in a way. I'll let you kind of clean that up. But I just had to process that out loud as I think about this question because I think Jesus just models this so beautifully. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think his example is is the powerful thing that draws us all. So where my mind went when you were saying that is, 
you know, we talk about the impact of love, mm-hmm. right? And love allows us to move past shame. So shame is the label of, you know, I've done a wrong thing, I've done a bad thing, and it's going to follow me for the rest of my life, and there's no getting out of it, right? When a person takes on shame, we know from the research that's highly correlated to depression. But the good news is that restoration, redemption, that that notion of redemption is the thing that's so powerful in the Christian faith that bad things can happen and they can be redeemed, they Mm. can be restored, and that's the power of love. Love at the beginning, love in the middle, love at the end. And when we watch Jesus' example, he wrapped his arms in love in a non-judgmental way, but allowed people to, you know, walk out their redemption Mm. and really make beautiful things happen in their life and in others' lives. So that's the power of the work. I mean, I'm excited to continue the work because I feel like, especially when it comes to reconciliation and justice, right, we have the power right now to write a new story, right? We, we have to reckon and we have to grapple with everything that's gone on in our country, you know, with the society. There's a lot of things happening. But the good news is, right, and this is what Jesus calls us to, to make a better world. We have the power in the faith to write a better story. Mm. So that's my motivation to keep on with the work. Mm. Wow, this was a great episode. Uh, Adele, where's the best way for people to find you if they're looking for you online? or Uh, I am on Twitter. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, I am on Instagram. So, yeah. We'll we'll tag you in the post. Okay. Um, I know some of your kids are on Twitter and Instagram, so I'm sure they bust you up. So (laughs) anyways, the best place to find us is uh, whygodwhypodcast.com. Click the subscribe button. Um, I'm having talking issues like Aaron was, but uh, you can get there. Uh, If you click subscribe, you'll get this episode and every other episode. Great ones like this. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you.